This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The same factors causing labor shortages in our hospitals and long-term care homes are hitting the home care sector. Home Care Ontario says that before the pandemic, the sector, the homes collectively, could fulfill 95% of requests for home visits. But as of December 31st of last year, the agency said that number had dropped to just 56%. And it is undoubtedly worse now because of Omicron-related absences. And this comes on top of a shattering statistic. Apparently, 4,000 nurses have left the home care sector since the onset of the pandemic. And there are knock-on effects. This puts a strain on hospitals. The latest numbers from the province show that 582 patients would be eligible and able to leave hospital with publicly funded home care if it was available. And of course, of course, it also puts added strain on the family caregivers who have to pick up the slack. We want to hear from you. What are your experiences trying to get home care, getting home care, not getting home care, recently or throughout the pandemic, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Natalie Mera, who is the Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, Jake Mitten, who is the Owner and Managing Director of Home Instead Markham, and Carrie Thompson, a caregiver to her mother, who has Alzheimer's disease. Thank you all for being with us. Thank you, Libby. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, Let us get right to it then. Natalie, were you surprised by these numbers? No, but, you know, honestly, Libby, if anything, I think they kind of understate the problem because, you know, when, when... when they were saying that they could do, it was 96, 95, 96% of the home visits, um, you know, they could, they could accept 96% and do the home visits for them prior to the pandemic. Our experience was that the chief complaint we got from people who are in home care or needing home care of their families is um, missed visits. So even though they might ostensibly be supposed to be receiving those visits, or they might have been, um, they weren't enough workers to show up for the visits. And that was incredibly common before the pandemic. So to hear that that number, you know, 96, which is kind of a, makes it look a little better than it really was prior to the pandemic, has dropped to 56, and that the rest, 56%, so almost 50%, 40, 44%, can't even get on to home care onto the list to supposedly get home visits is extremely disturbing, very disturbing. And it probably, I mean, it's an illustration of how much worse things have gotten, but I don't think really totally captures, uh, you know, how little care at home there really is available to people now. Well, yeah, you know, I when I saw the 96%, I, I had the same thought that you did. Uh, let's ask Jay. Mitten, who uh, manages and owns Home Care Stead in Markham, um, have you felt this problem of your employees leaving because of the strain? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that we've, all industries have, have felt the staffing shortage, but healthcare and home care specifically. And, you know, for us, the, the health and safety of not only our clients, but also our employees you know, it's really our top priority. And so I think the biggest issue these last few months have been, you know, making sure that they stay safe and healthy and following public health guidelines, that the the rampant Omicron is going around, 
once they, you know, inevitably it, it does get picked up by some of our staff and then following protocol, you know, they're, they need to be put in isolation and that does leave the potential for shifts to be unfilled. And I think with home care in general, you know, it, it's, it makes up such a substantial part of our healthcare system and just the fact that it's being done in the, you know, the private dwellings of people's homes, you know, it's not something that's always, uh, seen. And, you know, we play a big role in not only keeping people out of the hospital from preventative measures, but as you kind of mentioned afterwards, people who would be or when they're leaving the hospital to go home and aren't fully able to be independent, we play a huge part in keeping them safe in their home. Well, that's right. And uh, if you can't accommodate those requests, it's family caregivers. Kerry Thompson, uh, first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Libby, wishing like everybody that there could be more balance in, in what is happening in all of our lives, and some are suffering more than me, I'm sure. But uh, taking care of a, a mother with Alzheimer's is a pretty precarious balancing act, trying to work and manage your family on the side. We we actually needed to move my mom from being at home to living in an independent retirement home. So the the focus is on the word independent retirement home. So technically, she's supposed to be independent enough to take care of herself, but that's not the case. And that's where we could find a bed for her. Long-term care is completely backed up, filled up, long waiting lists. So in an independent retirement home, just as if she was still in my home, we can get the services that Natalie and Jake are talking about, government-funded PSWs coming in to take care of her in her retirement home, which which sounds wonderful, and it is. But when when we have these extreme shortages, what happens to someone like my mom with Alzheimer's is sometimes she refuses care. It's care that she needs to have, and she doesn't understand that she needs to have. So these PSWs, God bless them, they come back to my mom's room two and three times trying to catch her at a moment whether it's a moment of lucidity or just a moment of openness to receive a visitor, to toilet her. Like, this is not something that is, should she be toileted or not? She must be. But they have to play an amazingly challenging game to to get her to get her basic services that the government is paying for in home care. And then the other thing is the government has this lovely line that these services are not guaranteed. So what does that mean exactly? It means they'll do their best to get there, but maybe they won't. So as her daughter, I'm thinking, what? where does that leave us? So then I pay the retirement home to help her, a little per diem to help her, or I rush in and say, oh, nobody could come and get her dressed this morning or changed. I better rush over and do it. So it's a system that is fraying at the edges. It's a system of full of well-intentioned, big-hearted people, but I wish they'd spend a little bit more time with focus groups talking to the family so they'd really understand the so, realities of life. So, Carrie, how often has it happened that these services that you say you're fortunate enough to to usually get, mm-hmm. they they just haven't happened and you've had to rush in? Great question. Um, in the last two weeks, because of the Omnicon and everybody being so sick, it has happened, I'm going to say, 50% of the time. Wow. It's crazy. Wow. And that's at a place uh, that's usually doing well. Natalie, um, do you see differences, in, again, in the different types of living situations? So uh, living in a retirement home, which, by the way, can be very expensive, Mm-hmm. Uh, are are those people a lot better off than somebody who is actually in their home needing help? Yeah, there's a range, um, I think, Libby. And also, I think it depends on where people are. You know, things are a little better in Toronto, really terrible in Ottawa area, harder in rural area, you know, in the surrounding rural areas. it's It, it ranges, really, by community. But, I mean, it's really bad all around. Our co-chair on our board, his mom, was up until recently in home care in the Ottawa area. And uh, every week, 
multiple visits would just be completely missed every single week. So if your home care is to get you up, right, get you out of bed, get you up, cue you to eat, make sure you have your medications, do bathing, um, if that's the day that you're going to have your shower or your bath, um, if, that de- if that person doesn't show up, then the person is left in bed alone with nothing. For people with um, who are paraplegic, you know, can't move, um, you know, can't, you might have a bag and a catheter that needs to be emptied. It's devastating to be left with no one showing up for the visit. And so there's, you know, the, the fact that they are even taking people on to the home care roles because there aren't enough staff. And then even the people that are on don't, you know, there's a lot of missed visits because there aren't enough staff to provide the care. Uh, it really is devastating. And it does mean, I think, very, very serious health risks for people, you know, for, for decline in health status that for many of them is irreversible. I don't think there's a way of sort of overstating the crisis that we're in right now. And it's not just Omicron. I mean, through the whole pandemic, it's gotten much worse, but it was really bad before. And now I think we're at a level of staffing crisis that really does require government intervention, emergency measures to get boots on the ground, people in to provide the life-sustaining help that people need. Jake, uh, do you have a sense of, say, what percentage of missed visits uh, are occurring at, uh, at at your company? And uh, also a sense of uh, what it would take to get things back on track? Yeah, I mean, with us, uh, you know, we're, we're always doing everything in our power to make sure that we're filling visits at home instead. The primarily, um, the majority of the clients we see are actually family-funded clients, so that the families have, you know, hired us privately um, to help out. And recently, a lot of what we've seen is families are calling us, these family caregivers in distress, saying, you know, mom or dad's been out of the hospital, they've been discharged for, you know, they've been out for a week or so, and they still haven't been getting the home care they needed and it's all fallen on me. And so that's where they're asking us to come separately to, to give them a hand, have our PSWs come in there and, you know, assist with the bathing, the dressing, the grooming, um, giving them a break. Uh, and so in terms of what it's going to take, uh, I don't have the answer for that, but I think that uh, something does have to change. So again, uh, do you have a sense, are any of your visits missed or you don't have that problem because it's privately paid for? Um, it's, it's not a large percentage. I, I don't have the, the actual data in front of me. Um, but you know, it, it does happen on occasion. So, uh, just to, uh, fully explain what Jake was talking about, he's talking about people who are released from hospital who go through, uh, the lens or whatever they're called these days, which is yet another, uh, middle person agency and qualify. They are eligible for, uh, they're eligible for publicly funded home care. The publicly funded home care doesn't show up. So they then say, okay, we'll pay for it. And then they get what they need. Natalie, did I get that right? Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's pretty hard for any private company that's trying to sell home care to say, like, you know, we miss a lot of visits. But I think the, pro- I, the problem is, is everywhere. I was meeting with a bunch of families who have total needs kids, you know, kids that need home care. And they can't even find workers to, to work privately for a lot of money you know, for pay, pay out of pocket. They can't find nurses overnight. They, you know, for, for special needs, you know, th- that are more complex, they can't find anybody at all. It means they can't work. Um, and the same thing applies to families who have seniors in their household that need care. So um, really, I think the problem is very bad all around. And the cost of private home care to pay out of pocket really is enormous. I mean, it's way beyond what most people could afford. So, you know, it can, some people can afford some supplement for some period of time, but, um, it just, I mean, the reason we have a public health care system is, is 
precisely that. You know, people uh, can't afford to pay privately for health care. So the falling apart of home care, which really is happening, uh, really, uh, it, it is a crisis and it really has to be addressed. But it's a systemic issue. Home care companies are competing with long-term care and with hospitals for staff. And long-term care pays more and hospitals pay even more. And they're both in crisis right now. So, uh, you know, it requires a kind of bigger picture intervention, emergency intervention, and then addressing the sort of underlying systemic issues in the long term. Uh I'm just looking at the numbers here, uh, and the Ford government uh, pledged an additional $549 million over three years to home and community care, Uh, and that was supposed to fund about 28,000 extra visits. So, Natalie, do you know, uh, or Jake, has has anybody seen any of that money? Um, well, I can say just quickly, like the money is 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 available, and there's even more available. There's a lot of federal funding also that has flowed to the provinces for COVID nineteen relief and for um, and the province like that is a significant bump up in health and home and community care funding. The issue is if you can't find staff, there's no care without staff. Home care is hugely overwhelmingly provided by human beings. And so, yeah, the money's there, but the staff are not there. And uh, and that's the problem. And then I say jumping in, not everybody should be in the profession. Yeah. Right? So, so <laughs> yes, there might be money and you might train some people, but I, it's not just anybody who can deal with someone like my mom who has Alzheimer's or other people with other challenges. Like this takes a ginormous amount of creativity. So the other day, I almost flew into a rage when I saw my mother had been double diapered. And I thought, what the heck? What that read to me was someone was not doing their job properly, knew they couldn't get back to her in time, and was willing to leave her sitting in her waist for a longer period of time, but didn't want the inconvenience of wet clothes or wet bed sheets. That was my first thought. Wow, was I wrong. I talked to her PSW, and and luckily, I caught myself and said, can you help me understand the double diaper? And she said, absolutely. Your mother often refuses care. She doesn't like to be toileted. So when we have a chance to toilet her, we put on the double diaper so that the next time we come to visit her, She doesn't have to sit on the toilet. She doesn't have to go through the full toileting. We can kind of distract her, talk to her, gently pull her pants down a little bit and rip off the wet diaper and voila, the dry is there. It's not the same ordeal for her that she pushes back and refuses. And I thought, wow, you are in the right profession. You are creative. You are caring, you are respectful to my mother, and you colored outside the lines a little bit to find a solution. There are beautiful PSWs out there doing that type of work, but I'm going to say it's not for everybody. Even if you offered more money, not everybody should be doing this. It is a labor of love being a PSW. Jake, if you offered people more money, would you have a better time with recruiting? Yeah, so I, I think overall, I do want to kind of just backtrack a little bit. You know, we, we do acknowledge that home care is, is not for everyone. But at the same time, you know, the vast majority of people, that is where they want to be. And so the government has, you know, never provided certain services, you know, speaking for um, certain Alzheimer's and dementia care. You know, um, what we do is not just taking care of their physical needs. Um, as the family caregivers know, we're taking care of their emotional needs. We're keeping them engaged, keeping them safe. And, and so that stuff that has really um, services that aren't normally really provided. Um, and just overall, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I think that more focus does need to just be put on home care in general. I think oftentimes it seems that long-term care gets, you know, gets all the focus, and, and rightfully so. It, it's a big part, but home care is a huge part of what we do. 
um, and just the healthcare system in general. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Pat. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. I've got a real surprising horror show that I had never been aware of. I have a, a relative who has very bad dementia and is in a, a private uh, care and has round-the-clock TSW assistance. So the family's paying uh, $260,000 a year. Wow. For, for, but here's the problem. Because they don't have the LIN involved, and if the LIN is involved, it's probably a different person coming for 15 or 20 minutes every day, which would upset the man. So what happens as a result of that? They pay 13% HST on top. So there's $34,000 going for something that shouldn't be there. It, it, It makes no sense, but that is the law, and it needs to be changed. I'm I'm, uh, you're you're telling me something I know nothing about. So private home care has HST, but but what? Well, no, if you so the man's in a in a private uh, one of the big chains. Right. But he has a round the clock CSW cost uh, service. So that's costing the family $260,000 a year. But because he doesn't have the LIN involved, and the reason for not having the LIN involved, they would come in for 15 minutes a day. But it would probably be a different person every day. Got it. There are lots of reasons not to have the LIN involved, trust me. (laughs) But but the problem is, if you don't have them involved, you pay HST, so they're paying $34,000 of HST. But I don't understand. So, isn't there HST on everything, or what? The government, uh, if the government pays, it doesn't pay itself HST. The the thing is, if they had, if they had uh, the 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 LIN involved for fifteen minutes a day. There would be no HST imposed on any of the PSW costs. Oh, I get it. So does that make any sense? I mean, the reason they would love to have the LIN involved, but the poor man, he he would get angry, he would get upset, and it's going to be a different person every day. So they if they get there, yeah, exactly. So so as a result of that, they get penalized thirty four thousand dollars a year. That's. I, I hear somebody chortling there. It's me. Yeah, Natalie. Go I ahead. Mean, I think that $34,000 a year is an issue, but I think that, what was it, $250,000 a year? $250,000. They're paying, they're paying I know, I get the that. And the tax, but I mean, they're also paying out of pocket 200 and what did you say, $30,000 a year? $260,000 on top of $75,000 a year. Which, I mean, I think... Both, you know, both of those are issues. Obviously, if they had public, publicly funded home care, they wouldn't be, be being billed at all, and there would be no HST. Um, the fact that they have to pay privately for home care, for care that, for a level of care, like consistency of care worker, um, you know, which it should be the norm for everybody, that should just be a basic quality of care. It's something we've called for for literally 25 25 years now uh, in home care is ludicrous. The fact that that family has to put out that kind of money, tax or no tax, is ludicrous. And it isn't necessary. Like, this is not how every other province in the country runs home care. Yes, we're in a crisis in the pandemic, but we were in a crisis before the pandemic. And what you're talking about, I think, really illustrates the deep problem here. Home care needed to be stabilized. It needed to have a professional workforce that was paid adequately so that you could have consistency of caregiver, which is critical for people like um, Carrie's mom and for um, for your, is it family but, member? But the family would be just happy if they didn't have to pay the 34000 yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you know what? Uh, that makes no sense. That, yeah, that, you're, that, thanks for bringing that to my attention, Pat. Thanks for your call. You know, at this point, I don't think anybody expects the government to cover 24-hour care should that become necessary, but, but something a little better than what we get now. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, if you're going to pay people reasonably, well, the, the money has to come from somewhere. Ultimately, you know, it comes from us. But, but again, you know, even if you don't expect 
that full, full coverage, it, it ought to be better than it is now. And, and Natalie, you're right. I mean, if they don't have people showing up, I don't see how they can guarantee that it's the same person every day. Right. Yeah, you know, that's the, remember, Libby, we used to talk about this years ago. Yep. We used to all call for home care funding to be provided for people, the option for people to live at home up to the cost of a long-term care home, right? And yeah. And that that's not unreasonable at all. Like, really, the fact that things have gotten so bad, I don't want us to lose, um, to diminish our what we're calling for away from what is needed. I mean, at this point, we need a massive provincial-level recruitment strategy like they did in Quebec for long-term care where they trained 10,000 people in, you know, intensive training, bearing in mind what Carrie talked about, like this is not for everyone, um, to just get, you know, to get a bump up that would, that would alleviate the immediate emergency and then a, a, a recruitment training and retention, that means attracting back existing staff strategy uh, to, to stabilize the the sector, to stabilize the workforce. Well, so of course, Natalie, they they Sorry. say they're they say they're doing that. I'm going to take a call yeah. from Wanda in Georgetown. Hello, Wanda. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Um, my mother had a stroke November of 2019, and she lives in Georgetown, and I, as her daughter, live in North Bay, and. I had to come down and I've been living with my mother ever since November of 2019. And only because after, after that, we were hit with that pandemic. So there was absolutely no way I was going to consider putting her into a nursing home. So I also had to pay to have a lift chair put into her home. I had to have her bathroom all redone so that I would be able to shower her. Now, we do have a PSW that comes once a day, and we get supposedly an hour service, but she's usually there for about 15 minutes. Yep, I've heard that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then she's out the door, and yeah, I'd say 25% of the time I'm getting a phone call saying that she wasn't able to show up for work, or is it okay? Could I manage with my mother and not even need her service that day, but... I also work full-time, and I'm fortunate that I've been able to work on my mother's home and look after her. But again, my husband, uh, he goes back and forth to North Bay to maintain our home there. Wow. Uh, he's 73 years old, and it's, it's just awful. you know. And I've had to pay out of our pocket all the money to renovate her home so that we could just keep her there and be able to look after her. I'm pretty sure you can get some money back for some of that. You should ask an accountant. Uh, I mean, uh, your situation sounds so difficult. And I mean, hats off to you for doing the right thing. But it really does sound very hard. It is very hard. And, you know, even if, you know, we could just get some financial assistance to have somebody come in and care for her, like for a weekend so that I could go home and spend time at home for, for a little bit of the time, it would be wonderful. But it, our healthcare system is a mess and nobody wants to be accountable or pay for anything. And it's up to the family members to have to look after our elderly. Wanda, thank you very much for your call. Really appreciate it. And all the best to you. And I hope things get better. Well, thank you. And the same to everybody else who's out there looking after their loved ones as well. And uh, power to you. Okay, thank you. You know what? We are over time on this segment. There's a lot more we could be talking about. But I'm going to say thank you and goodbye. And I'm sure we will revisit this topic again soon. So thank you, Jake Mitten, Kerry Thompson, and Natalie Mera. Really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Libby, for highlighting this such an important fight back topic. Okay. We are going to take a break. And, you know, it's not just the home care sector, even though they get paid less than other parts of the health care system. We'll talk about the nurses situation when we come back after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Oh, no. 
Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been talking about nurses and others leaving the home care sector because they can make more in other parts of the system. But after working through the pandemic for two long years, the fact is nurses are leaving the profession altogether. One of the big issues is money. They are limited to a 1% increase. Doug Ford has agreed to a meeting after initially refusing to take it, or maybe his staff refused. So is more money the key to solving this? And uh, is this a sign they may get it? Uh, let us go to Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare, which represents over 60,000 healthcare workers, and Dr. Doris Greenspoon, chief executive officer of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Hello and welcome. Hi, Libby. Thank you for having us back, and great to be with you, Charlene. Um, Likewise, Charlene, so um, is getting more money the key to solving this shortage? And and what about this meeting that's getting so much hype? Yeah, again, uh, thank you, Libby, for having me on. And, uh, you know, Bill 124 is uh, a real slap in the face. We've heard that from these workers. It definitely handcuffs them from being able to deal with critical issues such as wages, which is one of the number one reasons why we're seeing this exodus, but also uh, the opportunity to improve benefits. And, you know, these workers, you've heard the stories, are so terribly burnt out. They're experiencing PTSD. So it even limits our ability to get them uh, mental health support. So, uh, repealing Bill 124 absolutely is a start, but it is the is not the only solution. We need to have a, a real solid across sector health human resources plan for every sector. You spoke about home care. You know the the entire health and community system is in a crisis. Uh, we've brought solutions to this premier for the last couple of years, uh, which he has ignored. He spoke to us for the first time last fall when he made his uh, minimum wage announcement and. You know, you've heard us call on the fact that we need a universal wage rate across the sector for PSWs at $25 and RPNs at $35. And fast forward to here, we are almost entering into our third year. I think the Premier also has to take a look at something like uh, stabilization pay that will help workers come back and deal with the backlog that we're going to be talking about in a few months as well. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Greenspoon, uh, Doug Ford, I think, used to at least talk to you regularly. Do you think he's ready to give nurses a bump? Well, you know, I surely hope that the Premier watches the news. I say that uh, tongue-in-cheek. But look, the Premier knows I have been speaking for two years with him. Nurses have been through the most challenging times in their careers, whether junior or senior ones, maybe. They deserve... Um, immediate, immediate relief. I have been asking for already two years for this life-saving jacket, I call it. Repeal Bill 124, as Charlene said, because it's a slap in the face. Firefighters, police, doctors were left out of it. Nursing, no. Uh, and also, at the very least, with, alongside with that, because it will take time to negotiate a new agreement, an immediate and substantive top up in compensation across the board for in all sectors, by the way, in all sectors, not only hospital and nursing homes, but also home care, as you mentioned. Otherwise, we will not have anybody left to not only for Omicron and the next virus that is coming, which is a new variant, but also the surgeries and the backlogs without home care that doesn't work. So across all sectors, all settings, and I would say all healthcare workers, and, you know, it needs to move now. And also the issue of workload, Libby. Nurses are leaving both because of the compensation. They go to agencies, they get three times the money, they go to the U.S. I don't want to tell you because then I am marketing, quite frankly, the U.S. <laughs> uh, but they also, is because they cannot provide the safe and quality care with expertise and compassion that they want to provide. So we need to relieve the workload. And for that, Libby, today, two days ago, we sent to the college, today we released a letter, 20,000 Libby internationally educated RNs and RPNs waiting on the sidelines, eager to work in Ontario, fast-track their process. They have been waiting upwards to eight years. 
and we need to relieve. They're living here. We are not going to steal them from other countries because we don't support that, but they're living here. They came to Canada to make their home. They're eager to work, and they can't because they're waiting for processes. Well, we were we were told that that situation would be clarified. And I, I know you're both talking about repealing the bill. It seems to me you don't have to repeal the whole bill to make uh, take nurses out of it as opposed to civil servants who've been working from home. Uh, and you know, uh, that's up to the premier how yeah. he manages the politics of it. All I know is our colleagues have been working flat out, Livia, and you know it. We have talked so many times, flat out. They cannot anymore not be recognized. It's just absolutely uh, obscene, and they're living. They're, they're living. They're living. You're right. They're living because other places respect them better. I'm going to take a call from Helen in Hamilton, who's been waiting since our first uh, segment. Helen is a registered nurse uh, with some perspective on the different parts of the healthcare system. Hi, Helen. Thanks. Thanks for holding on. Oh, no problem, Libby. I enjoy your show. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. So, Okay, so I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for many, many years. Uh, my, uh, I'm not working at the moment. I actually formally retired. I, my last position was in home health care, and to be very honest with you, I loved it. I enjoyed it very much, um, but... A, the pay was certainly a lot less than, than my previous jobs, and I was expected to, you know, travel around, and I would sometimes put on between 50 and 90 kilometers a day on my personal vehicle, and I was, we weren't even given a um, per diem for mileage. Right. And we were expected to pick up additional calls that maybe were outside of our area, which would uh, add to our time on the road as well as mileage, and that wasn't compensated. As I said, and the other thing was was to get in the number of visits. And as an old nurse, I really found it difficult to uh, to try to provide appropriate care in a hurry. That's not the way I was trained to nurse, and so that really bothered me. Prior to that, I worked in long-term care, and what I found really distressing in long-term care was the uh, documentation system, this RAI-MDS, which I believe they brought in uh, because of the number of seniors that had a lot of um, issues, like with, you know, bed sores not being documented or taken care of and things like that. But this computer system is so convoluted, I I mean, you you couldn't spend the time with with the resident because you were having to do all this documentation on the computer. It was it was a real challenge. And again, I loved working with seniors. Um, it was a it was a great job. But you know, again, I couldn't balance having to sit at a computer to document and not be giving the appropriate care to my residents. Helen, thank you so much for your perspective. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So, uh, you know, uh, as bad as it is in, in some parts of the healthcare sector, it's, it's worse in others. Uh, we've got to wrap things up. Charlene, when is this meeting with the Premier and, and what do you want? Uh, well, I mean, the Premier's meeting uh, with the Ontario Nurses Association. And as I said, we have asked him for numerous meetings and he has just gone to the point where he is ignoring the frontline voices. So I guess my call to action now is, yes, definitely, if the Premier wants to meet with SEIU to talk about personal support workers and registered practical nurses, uh, we're here, but he seems to not want to listen to frontline. So what I'm doing today is calling on the Conservative uh, voters to call their Conservative MPPs and the Premier and ask them what the heck is going on in our health and community system across the province and to do something about it immediately because we cannot spare one more worker uh, leaving the system like Helen. Doris, uh, I'm going to give the last uh, 15 seconds to you. We want solutions. The Premier knows exactly what's going on. The Premier has had numerous briefings. The Premier has all of our documents. We send that with all the materials. Now we need the Premier to act. Repeal Bill 124 immediately or exempt nurses and other healthcare workers 
uh, on the, you know, and top up the compensation big time because if not, no one will be left. Big time because until there is a new agreement, it will take a long time. And even if it takes 90 days, it's 90 days too short to, to help nurses. So top up compensation huge and maybe even retrospective because others got, others got top ups, as you know. Many others got top ups, uh, but nurses, nurses have not. Okay. Uh, I'm sure we'll be following up on this. Thank you so much, Charlene Stewart and Dr. Doris Greenspoon. My pleasure. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you. Believe me. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're talking about your money. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just this morning, the Bank of Canada announced that it is keeping its key interest rates steady, though it set the stage for a hike in March. And everyone is expecting a series of rate hikes in an attempt to control inflation. In the meantime, the markets have been wild and volatile with big losses most of the month after a really long bull market run. What does this mean for older investors? And if you have questions we have experts, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to Benjamin Tal, Managing Director and Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC Capital Markets, and Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor, Alan Small Financial Group, Private Wealth. Hi, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, I'll start with Alan because uh, I didn't even check the markets right before I went to air. So, how are we doing today? We are up. It's uh, it's actually a very good day. The markets uh, pre market, but we're, markets were higher. I think uh, Microsoft did uh, a lot to help the markets. Reporting late last night uh, started off down a little bit and then rebounded after their conference call. So, we came into this morning on a positive note right across the board. Uh, Toronto as well as New York markets, and uh, those gains have basically held. And now we're waiting to hear the Federal Reserve in the U.S. at 2 o'clock, see what they have to say. But hopefully we can hold on to some of these big gains. Okay, well, hopefully. Benjamin Tall, I, you know, people are, are bracing for interest rate hikes. That might be a good thing for people. But uh, the Bank of Canada is holding steady, and inflation is a huge and growing issue. Yes, the Bank of Canada faced a major dilemma before the decision because on the one hand, inflation is rising and you <clears throat> need to fight it and maintain your credibility as a central bank that is, that is fighting inflation. At the same time, do you really want to raise interest rates in an environment in which we are still in the midst of an Omicron where uh, the job market will be negative in January, people are struggling, small businesses are struggling? Do you really want to raise interest rates in this environment? So it was uh, the decision not to raise interest rates was really a PR decision, basically try to show that uh, the um, uh, bank is not blind to what's happening uh, in the economy given COVID. At the same time, they are basically raising interest rates without raising interest rates by telling the market, listen, the party is over. We are raising interest rates. Be ready. Alan, uh, what should people do in their portfolios to prepare for these rising rates? And that's a great question. I think, especially for retirees, a lot of them have been forced to move into the stock market because interest rates have been so low for so long. You really can't make enough to, to keep up with inflation, to keep up with their people's expenses. So a lot of individual investors have been forced to move into the stock market to, to earn a higher rate of return than they would get in the fixed income market. And I think these are the individuals that I think when times are volatile, they're the ones that uh, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're the most likely to panic or, or make some, some poor judgments or poor decisions because, frankly, they're just not used to being in the market during these times. So what I think they need to do is anytime these things happen, take a step back. You know, don't make any uh, rush. Don't rush to judgment. Don't rush to make a move. Uh, if you're owning good quality names, a lot of these retirees have moved into things such as Canadian bank stocks, I think. And I think Canadian bank stocks work in a rising interest rate environment. Banks in general tend to work. So I think what individual investors have to do is assess their portfolio, assess the, you know, the companies they own. Do these companies have pricing? Uh, you know, can they can they pass along pricing uh, higher costs to to the end user? 
uh, you know, do the, do these companies that uh, someone owns, do they grow? Do they have a bottom line growth and will they continue to grow? So I think any company that can pass along higher costs to the end user and that can show long-term growth, those are the names that I believe individual investors want to take a look at during these times. Benjamin Tall, what do you think consumers can do in the face of this inflation? And, you know, this these interest rate hikes, presumably, they won't come very quickly. Yes, that's the key question. How quickly the Bank of Canada and the Fed will raise interest rates? We have to remember that every economic recession over the past 50 years was helped, if not caused, by monetary policy error in which central bankers raise interest rates way too quickly. So the number one risk facing the market is if the Fed or the Bank of Canada will go crazy with interest rates and raise interest rates very quickly. The number one enemy is not higher rates, but rapidly rising rates. And uh, when I meet with the Bank of Canada, and I meet with the Bank of Canada very often, unfortunately, (laughs) I can tell you that uh, they understand that and they don't want to repeat past mistakes. So I believe that uh, the market now pricing in five or six moves by the Bank of Canada is too hawkish. I think that the Bank of Canada will go more slowly. But at the end of the day, they will take interest rates to where they belong. So now interest rates are basically one quarter of a percentage point. We are basically seeing interest rates rising to 2%, but slowly, gradually, making sure that you are not shocking the market. So expect interest rates to be rising, but not very quickly. In this environment, I like uh, stocks that pay you back dividends and buy back uh, stocks. Uh, I like companies, again, like banks, uh, like energy. Usually in early stages of uh, higher interest rates, energy and banks are doing extremely well. And this time they will do even better. Why? Because companies are sitting on a mountain of cash. We are talking about roughly $200 billion of extra cash, excess cash sitting on the sidelines. So energy companies will be providing and raising their dividends. Banks are doing it already, will continue to do so. Also, for consumers, you will see companies like our big grocers that are not so linked to the supply chain issues that we are having, that have pricing power, they will be able to ride the wave. So there are many options for investors in this environment. Uh, Alan, uh, Benjamin was just predicting an increase to 2%, a slow increase. That's not enough for all those nervous stock market investors that you were talking about earlier. Well, I think, uh, you know, Benjamin makes a a great point in that that the rise will be gradual. And I do believe that both stock market and interest rates can rise together. We've seen this in the past where, at least initially, as interest rates begin to rise, stock market can and and does tend to follow. So, again, you want to find companies that have good pricing power uh, that can pass along the cost to the end user. Uh, We saw last night, for example, CN Rail reported earnings, and they talked about rising prices. Um, So these are companies that that I think will continue to do well. And yeah, you know, I think interest rates will rise gradually. I think the normalization of interest rates, uh, you know, has been called for for quite some time. I agree. I think at a time when, you know, we're still being restricted, especially here in Ontario, with respect to our businesses, they can't operate at full capacity. It'd be very difficult for the Bank of Canada to to begin to raise interest rates when businesses were not able to to run at full capacity. And so I think it was the right move to wait at least until the spring. And and something else that I think, you know, that I was talking about this morning with with some as well is that, you know, I'd like to see the U.S. go first with respect to higher interest rates. I don't know if that's going to happen because I would like to see, I I wouldn't like to see our dollar get, you know, too much higher, you know, an 85 cent dollar Uh, to me, is a little bit high. I'd rather see the dollar hovering around the 75 to 80 cent range. So ideally, I think if if the U.S. Fed were to to raise rates and then we were to follow right behind, I think for me personally, I think that would be more comfortable in that case. And so I think that would also be better for individual businesses, especially those that export goods to the United States, which are, as we know, are many of our businesses. So I think that the market is going to be bumpy this year, but I do believe individual investors uh, if you want good quality names, I think you will still have a positive return at the end of the year. Benjamin Tall, I mean, when we were seeing those big drops uh, in recent days, people were saying, okay, you know, that bear market is finally here. It's, it's a correction or it's worse than a correction. Uh, what do you think? Uh, are, are we heading to that or uh, escaping it? 
I think it's a function of how quickly interest rates will be rising. Uh, I think that what we are seeing now is something very typical to a situation in which you move from free money to cheap money. And interest rates are rising. Usually you see higher volatility in this kind of uh, environment, and that's exactly what we're seeing now. Granted, the volatility is really crazy if you look at the last few days, but it's still, nevertheless, volatility that we expected. At the same time, you know, when interest rates go up from 25 basis points, to 2%, that's a reasonable, normal scenario. We have no business being at 25 basis point interest rates. We have no business being there. There is no emergency uh, uh, anymore. We need to see interest rates rising. That's good for the economy. So I don't think that we are in a bear market. I think that um, the stock market is not uh, extremely expensive in Canada relative to the U.S. And remember, the dividend yield in Canada is actually double the dividend yield you get in the U.S., and therefore Canada is actually very attractive, especially if you look at banks and uh, energy. So overall, I suggest that, yes, this, the tech sector in the U.S. is suffering because it's extremely sensitive to uh, higher interest rates. But if your time horizon is not five minutes, if your time horizon is two or three years, I believe that there are some bargains in the tech uh, space at this point because the future is technology. Uh, I'll, I'll give the last word to Alan. Uh, do you agree, or are we we headed to that in uh, well, some would say inevitable bear market? No, I do agree. I do agree, and uh, I agree with uh, the uh, the ideas of, of technology and, and looking at some of those places where you know, the market seems to have sold off just because interest rates are are about to go higher. You know, I, I don't think names like you know the you know the chip makers or or some of the software, or some of the biggest tech names out there, the Googles, the Apples, the, the Microsofts, I think these companies will continue to do well, even if or when interest rates begin to rise. Because as uh, Benjamin said, they both can go up at the same time. And I, I agree, I do believe there are some bargains out there. I think there's a lot of money on the sidelines waiting to buy the dips. Uh, just I think there are a lot of cautious people. I think the people that took money out of the market I don't really think they're putting it into the bond market as yet. I think it's just on the sidelines waiting to enter back. And I think if we can get some stability in the markets, I think when cooler heads do prevail and we see that raising or rising interest rates is a normal function to get to the one and a half, two percent over the next year and a half or so, I think individuals will start to buy up some of these bargain uh, bargain priced uh, stocks. Okay. Thank you so much, Benjamin Tall and Alan Small. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.